So uh, we're going to keep going in Luke. And I recognize that uh, there's a couple things. One's a lot of scripture. And usually you don't do this. Put this much scripture up. Um, a lot of words. But they're the words of God. And it is what we're supposed to eat. And so if there's too much food on the table, leave it for somebody else. Because I know this is what I need. Um, I also recognize the screens are tough to see. So um, I printed out. Um, there should Todd, do you mind looking and see if behind you are scripture? Um, there, were, there were some folded scripture that uh, if you want that, it, what I did was I printed out in book format everything that's on the slide. So if anybody needs that, just raise your hand, Todd, I'll get it to you. And in the back, so there's a few. Um, thank you, Todd. Uh, Todd has been working like crazy. He's our facility manager. He was probably up late last night again, making sure all the um, hot spots work. Um, I love having Todd on staff because he thinks of everything that I just flat out would not think of and then makes it happen and then tells us about it the next day when it's already dealt with. Um, so thank you, Todd, for all the work you've done to get us to this spot where we're all sitting comfortably, um, seeing something, and it's just been a real blessing to have him on staff. So thanks, Todd. And the other thing we're going to do is we're going to do song sheets. And we may make song books because it's easier to see those as well, hopefully in the next week or two. And that way we have to go outside or we'll have our own traveling way to sing together. So we're in Luke. Kirsten already prayed, so I'm going to jump right into it. It's Luke chapter 5. And we are going through Luke this summer. And our normal rhythm will be to do this. And then communion Sundays are a little bit different. So there may be a different theme. But generally, we're going through Luke at least to chapter 9. And then we may take a break. In doing teaching this way, I may get to the end of uh, a chapter and not hit everything. Uh, what we'll do is kind of collect all in the fall, maybe do the bits and pieces. I didn't teach the last part where he goes out to teach the kingdom. That is one of the things, as some of you know, that's the main thing I get asked to speak on over the last 20 years is the kingdom of God, travel around and do that. I'm going to do that maybe in the fall one lesson when, you know, not as many people are on vacation, just kind of do it one time. But that was left over from last chapter, chapter 4. So now we're in chapter 5. And um, I'm going to get my little clicker out so we can move this thing along. I use the New King James not because that's necessarily what we're going to read in heaven, but because that's when I became a believer, that's the Bible I got. That's all I'm saying about that. If you like it, great. If you don't, um, we can still share communion. Um, so this is beginning of chapter 5, and people are coming to hear the word of God. So... In the previous chapter, chapter 4, he, he was tempted by Satan, and he said, Man does not live by bread alone, but from every mouth that proceeds the word of God. That's the word of God. So people gather just like we're gathered because that's what they were hungry for. And he had taught in the synagogues. Some synagogues, they didn't like him. Some they did. Uh, but this time he's outside. You can imagine being by a lake. Sound carries a little bit better. He pushed out on the boat. And... Uh, he sits down on the boat, and then try to, try to put yourself in the position of the fisherman. How many of you have worked all night? Anybody done night shift? I know I have, right? 
you're, you're going to sleep. If you do this regularly, you're somewhat used to it, but you never quite get used to it. And so these guys work at night. They're cleaning their nets. Now, you're not in a good mood, or at least I wouldn't be in a good mood, and your nets are spread out on the beach. And then Jesus comes along with this crowd of non-fishermen, and they are probably stepping on your nets. They are certainly in your way. Uh, if you've ever done any kind of like physical labor, construction, uh, lawn care, and then a bunch of people are walking around trying to socialize while you're trying to work, that's the situation you have. Okay, so keep in mind that um, Peter is in the same mood, I imagine, when he gets asked to do this by Jesus, to launch out in the deep and cast your net. Okay, let's see if we go. All right, Adam, you may have to do the, do the honors. Okay, so you can relate to this, and I love this about the scripture. We get to see honest human interaction. Um, he, just, he says, Simon says, Master, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. And then I imagine a little pause. If it were me, I wouldn't jump right to the never. I would wait if that was enough for Jesus to say, ah, never mind. Um, but he didn't, and he probably paused and said, nevertheless, I will uh, let down um, the net. And then he catches a great number of fish, as you know, and the net starts to break, and then he signals the other people to come help. One of the things that's interesting is the word that he uses when he says, um, responds to Jesus. He says, master. And it's not the word teacher in the Greek. It's master. Even though Peter's got his own business, he still has a boss, and that's a good thing to remember. No matter what, how we live our lives, we all have a boss. And so he says, master. And then he mentions, you know, the toiling. And you guys, you know, men and women, we know what it's like to toil and have it not work out. If you've ever worked on a project like on a Saturday and you realize something's broken and you work on it for two or three hours after a few trips to Lowe's and it still doesn't work, um, and you're frustrated. I'm sure none of you have been there, but I have. Um, so that sense of toiling with nothing happening, especially if it's not a job you enjoy, is particularly frustrating. Like if you prepare a meal and then it gets burnt at the end, you know, that kind of feeling is what's going on. And so nothing happened. And what I want to bring us to is... Some of us may be in that spot in terms of our Christian walk, in terms of ministry. You may be at a spot where you have toiled at something for the Lord, and it just seemed to not have done a whole bunch. And then here is God asking you to do something new. And you feel, oh. So early on when I became a believer, it seemed the first couple steps of faith I took worked out. You know, I became a believer at age 20, and I did a lot of things. And each time I leapt into a new thing, a new ministry worked out. And then a couple years in, that stopped happening. So I uh, was out of college. I'd been a believer for a couple years. I was managing my dad's accounting firm, his small accounting firm. My uncle ran a textile mill that I also managed the money for, and I was doing part-time work for a church. All things I liked, um, and then I sensed the Lord calling me to quit those things, leave the family business. I was the oldest son. 
my dad graciously had just helped me pay for an accounting finance degree, and there I was, uh, became a believer, and wanted to do ministry. And I went to the inner city of Baltimore, and I worked at a nonprofit in the inner city. Had to raise my own support, and then about nine months in, the ministry changed. They didn't need my help anymore. So there I was in the spring, broke. Um, I had stepped out in faith, and I had nothing to show for it. The other two jobs, they'd made other arrangements, my dad, my uncle, and the church had hired somebody else to do what I was doing. So I had taken a risk. I had toiled, and yet there I was. It wasn't working out. And, and then I sensed the Lord calling me to move to Chicago and go to Trinity Seminary there. And I lived in Baltimore at the time. And I really felt like, Lord, are you serious? I mean, did you not just see what has happened? Do I have to do this again? And I learned a lesson right then. Um, you'll hear me at times refer to the church fathers. I really like to study the writers and the Christians from the first couple hundred years of following Jesus. So that's what I started doing right away. Um, I knew very little about Christianity when I became a believer, and so I studied there in that section. And there was, I think it was First Clement. I don't remember where it was. I'd only been a believer for about you know, two years plus. And he said, uh, I thank God that he doesn't reward me monetarily every time I do something for him, like ministry. He said, because over time... I wouldn't be able to clearly say that I was doing it just to glorify the Lord. That over time, I might switch to wanting my heart to be, you know, I'd do it because it had worked out. I met more friends, or I made more money, or I had a better car, or whatever it was. If every time I stepped out in faith, the Lord rewarded me, then my motivation might get blurry over a couple of years. And so this helped me celebrate the fact that I just toiled and had absolutely, almost less than nothing to show for it. So if you're in that spot, just celebrate that you tried, that you toiled, that you did something for the Lord. And don't stay there, but you can be there. And as a Christian, we want to grow in the community of being able to be honest with each other. There, we're launching out. I'll, get, I'll talk about the church at the end of the service because the church fits into this too. But you, you may be at the spot where all you can do is come to church right now. That's fine. You may be, but be honest. Just say, this stinks. We stepped out, and it looks like I got nothing to show for it. So then what you have, you have nevertheless, he does it. And then you know what happens. Um, it takes off, fish coming in everywhere, abundance. And then the, the response from Peter is, depart from me, once he realizes what's going on. And Luke has shown uh, Jesus' authority over several things at this point. The demons, uh, illness we've seen. This is now nature. He has authority over the fish. This is a new demonstration from Luke, just wanting to show how far Jesus' authority extends. And for Peter, he realizes, he falls to his knees, says, depart from me, um, I'm a sinful man. Very similar to Adam when, when God got close, he just tried to hide. It's also, in the previous chapter, we heard the demons also asked Jesus to leave him alone. 
The difference is um, the demons are told to be silent, but Peter is invited to help out. Okay? So same words, but a different response. And I want to say it the same offer is to us. And you may feel like there's an opportunity to step out in ministry, and you are thinking, I am disqualified because I am a sinful person. And you may not have captured, as I struggle with, to be honest, really believing that he puts it as far as the east is from the west. So this is Isaiah 43, 25. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will remember your sins no more. So it's for God's own sake that he's setting our sins aside. You may be here, and you may be thinking, because of my past sin, I am disqualified from being involved in the ministry. Well, if God says you're forgiven, and you say uh, no, then you're dishonoring God. Scripture it says if you confess with your lips, you know, that Jesus is Lord. I mean, is he Lord or not? And he says this, and if we have confessed also our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us of unrighteousness. And so we may need to push through that. Peter had to push through it, and he did. Okay, so we've got to remember that we have a God that wants to be with us. And part of that is dealing with our sin, and he knows it's hard for us. Okay, so... We'll move on here. Okay, um, think about what it's like for these guys. They may be a little more of an awe of Jesus at this moment than they were the day before. And he says, do not be afraid. You're going to go catch men now. Um, this is what your job is going to be. From now on, you'll catch men. This is also a phrase from the prophet Jeremiah. He talks about this as well. Keep in mind what Luke is doing. He's tying Jesus in to the established understanding of what it means to follow God. He's, he's talked about Elijah, the last chapter, Elisha. Now he's quoting from Jeremiah. What he's showing is that Jesus is the fulfillment completely in accordance with what truth you've accepted to be truth. He's right in the middle of that. But we can be afraid too. Like, what are we afraid of? As we step out in ministry, what are the kinds of things that keep us frozen? Fear of inadequacy, that we won't be good enough. Um, fear of failure, of it not going well. Think through, and just this would be a good time to just pause as a church. We're a new beginning. And if we're being held back by things, we need to lay them on the table. And fear may be one of them as well. So the picture of them leaving their boats, they leave it all. That also ties back to the picture the, the listeners would have known about Elisha. When Elijah comes, Elisha is plowing, and he's got the ox going and oxen going in the field. And as soon as Elijah calls him into ministry, he turns the, um, the farm implements into a fire, and he sacrifices the oxen. Bad day for the oxen. But the point is, that's essentially leaving your boats. Elisha did the same thing. He's tying that in with the disciples and invites them, in essence, into the boat. So here's a picture for us, maybe. Jesus is in the boat. We are invited to be fishers of men. We're in the boat with Jesus. The rest of the world is in the deep. And most of you know what it's like to be out in the ocean when you're over your head 
and you're treading water, and if you're in the deep and you're just swimming, you are just trying to keep your head up and imagine somebody in a boat that is able to reach over and pull you in. We're in the boat. We're eternally secure. We have an internal destiny, and we are going to be with the Lord a thousand years from now. Jesus promises us that, that we're going to live forever. We don't need to be afraid of death. If as a Jesus follower you're looking, you were looking forward to some kind of death experience, you're going to be disappointed. Um, you're going to go from life to life, he says. You know, so we're in the boat. We're in the boat, and we're supposed to join in as fishers of men and pull people into the boat. And that could be the picture of us, you know, as a church as well. So the next part, I didn't do a slide because I looked at all the slides and it looked like too many. But then I started studying it a little more, and I thought, this is too cool to leave out. It's the part where he heals a leper. And so when think of leprosy, we don't see it that much anymore. But you may have remembered, and maybe more recent than you like, have gotten poison ivy and be covered with it. My mom's solution was cotton balls and what? Starts with a C. Calamine lotion, right? You know what that was. And then your mom would leave you with final instructions, which were, don't scratch. So think about that, covered in leprosy. He, Luke ties, um, Jesus heals, and that's a wonderful story about uh, are you willing, and, and he says he will. And then Jesus says something. He says, go do what the priest commands according to the commands of Moses. So again, Luke is tying us back into Moses and into the Old Testament and showing that Jesus is a fulfillment. So if you want to look later, Leviticus, I think it's 13 and 14, is where they talk about what you need to do. It's quite elaborate. You start with two birds. You need to kill one. Um, you need to uh, pour the blood out over running water. You need to dip the one bird in the other bird's blood. Then you let the bird free, and then you shave, you know, crew cut all around, wash your clothes, wash yourself, live outside your tent for seven days. Then you sacrifice three lambs, and you go through the process of their blood being put on your right ear, your right thumb, and your right big toe. Then oil does it. It's this long process. Now, we don't have to do that. Um, but one writer that I read, he wrote a couple hundred years ago, and as we look at some of these Old Testament commandments, like this one, he just reminded us, he said, let us not despise the ceremonial law just because its work is done. Let's not despise the ceremonial law just because its work is done. That's the way God prescribed for humans to deal with certain things, and let's not despise it just because its work is done. So, um, so then we get to go to a really fun story, one of my favorite ones to tell. And imagine this picture. They are, we learn they're in Capernaum because it shows up in the other Gospels. Some things to remind uh, you, it, just to, by now Jesus has words gotten out enough that Pharisees, it says, and teachers of the law who had come from every town in Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. Word has gotten out. They are now showing up in force. And the power of the Lord is present. Imagine what that must have felt like to some of people there. It might have been scary to others. And behold, they bring a man on a bed who is paralyzed, and they wanted to bring him in and lay him down. So Capernaum, 
There, in John 2, it also talks about Jesus moving down to Capernaum. He might have. It's, it's a little unclear to me whether he moves his family down there permanently. Remember, things didn't go well in Nazareth. Um, as the oldest son, we see him take care of his mom when he's crucified. But he's also probably the leader of the business with his brothers. He didn't set him well up for customer relations after getting the town so mad they wanted to kill him. And maybe he said to his brothers, yeah, just let's move. Um, you, you're going to have a hard time getting new jobs after what I did in the synagogue. So it seems like Capernaum becomes a new center. And it's along what's called the Via Maris. It's not Nazareth. It's not really hidden off. It is on the main uh, course uh, trade route. It has a Jewish population, obviously, but also has a Gentile population. It's, it's got a lot going on for a small town, and it is a very good place to get word out because things travel up and down. This could be Peter's house. We don't know. It's somebody's house. But in this, just remember, it's all pretty new, and um, Jesus would bring a lot of people into the house. And what that might have felt like for his wife or his family Jesus will mess up your life. It's just for stay-the-samers like me, following Jesus is not a good idea. Because if you planned a funeral back then, you did not want Jesus to show up because he raised a dead person every time. <laughs> Completely wrecks your theme. Your black dress, it's out. And you got to change. Um, he, the wedding, I'll talk about this when we get to John. Um, they run out of wine. One of the reasons I think they ran out of wine is because Jesus showed up with a lot of people, probably uninvited, who seemed like the kind of group that would drink the wine. And then they're out, you know? So having Jesus in your life is going to change things, and it may push your buttons. I know for me it does. Um, so, all right. So now the fun part of the story. Um, they can't find room, so they go up to the housetop. And then this is cool from a lot of person's reasons. One, again, I, I don't know, husband and wife, if you communicate non-verbally. Um, most women are better at speaking with their eyes than men are. Um, men will say, well, you didn't say anything, right? And they're screaming at you with their eyes. So just put yourself, let's say it is Peter's house. It's somebody's wife's house. And all these people are coming in, and they keep coming in, and they're sitting down, and she's looking at you like, what are you doing? You know? I mean, look, look at what the, these, who are these angry older guys here? They're frowning. They're in my house, these Pharisees. Like, what, what am I supposed to do with them? They're just sitting in here like they own the place. And then some other guys start tearing apart the roof. That probably didn't happen in 10 seconds. It, it, Jesus must have noticed. And he just didn't stop it. So imagine the, the conversation with the eyes. like, And Peter going, God, I, you know, I, I'm not going to stop him. And so down they come. And, uh, and you get this interaction. It kind of pauses. And... There are questions, and I'll talk about this more later, but questions are a big way that dialogue happened in that time, more so than for us. And so he asks a question, um, and he says, uh, he sees, he says, man, your sins are forgiven. Now, imagine the four guys. They did not tear up the tile 
for the guy's sin to be forgiven, I'm guessing. They tore up the tile so he could walk. That's why we brought him here. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And they, um, the scribes and Pharisees start reasoning, who is this who blasphemes? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They've got the right question. Only God can do this. They just can't fathom that it's Jesus. So they've got the right question going. Jesus perceives their thoughts. Let me move us along. Whoops. All right, Adam, can you move me along? I might have overpushed. Um, I'll tell you what happened. So we're at verse 22. Um, if we can get to it. But either way, I'll, you guys know the story. Jesus perceives their thoughts, and he says, why are you reasoning in your heart? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go home. So he's asking this question, which is easier to say? So think about it. What's easier to say? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why? Because you can't prove it. If I say to you, you know, your bank account has $10,000 more in it, right now I can't see it, and no one else in the room can either. It's the same kind of thing. You can't see it. But if someone's paralyzed and I say get up and walk, you can see whether they do or don't. So it is easier to say your sins are forgiven. That's the point with that. So... Um, Jesus is also not linking this guy's paralysis to sin. And that was something we see in John 9 where the blind man comes up and, and the disciples say, who sinned, this man or his parents? And, and Jesus says, neither, but so that the works of God may be um, glorified, that God may be glorified. So the sins are forgiven, and um, you might ask why. And one of the older guys written, wrote about 300, I think, Cyril of Alexandra and the 300. He said, this is speaking for Jesus. He said, I must heal your soul before I heal your body. If this is not done, by obtaining strength to walk, you'll only sin more. Okay? I must heal your soul before I heal your body. If this is not done, by obtaining strength to walk, you will only sin more. Think about a paralytic in those days. What sins could he commit? He can't go anywhere. He can't steal anything. There's a lot of things on the Ten Commandments he just can't do. And yet sin was his primary problem. It was a lesson not only to him, but also to everyone there, that the depth of sin is most of which we can't see. And only God can see it, and it needs to be addressed. Because if you have a life where you can walk and you have power and all that stuff, you're only going to sin more and create more trouble if we don't deal with that. And Jesus deals with that. He comes in and heals it, and he solves the problem. The challenge for the Pharisees is they were expecting a judge. They were expecting a judge to come, which he will come one day and judge. They weren't expecting that suffering servant. Remember when he read from Isaiah, when he stands up in his own, in his own synagogue, and he paused. I don't know if you remember when I said he paused between verses there, and this healer came. This healer came to be with humans to deal with our sin problem, and the judge comes back, but he comes as this healer right now. So I want to pause in there, and I'm going to pray for us and ask that the Word and the Spirit would move in our hearts. Lord, may we become the kind of people like Peter and the disciples who are willing 
to become fishers of men. Lord, help us to, to face our sin and to confess it, but then to trust you, that you will wipe it out, Lord. Help us to put aside fear, fear that may be keeping us from stepping out in faith. Lord, help us to set aside exhaustion and the discouragement that comes with toiling and having nothing to show. Lord, may we show faith and intercede on behalf of others in need like these four friends did. Lord, may we come to you and recognize the great gift you offer in dealing with our real problem, that we are sinful people and alienated from you. And Lord, may we get up. This is the second story so far in Luke where Jesus is in a room and the person's laying down at the beginning and is up and walking after. It's a picture of the final resurrection, but it's also a picture of right now. May we be a people who fix our eyes on you and trust in you to raise us up so that we can do things in your name and glorify you whether we eat, drink, or whatever we do. In Jesus' name, amen.